1: In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of 2 Peter, chapter 1.
0: Father, we thank you for bringing us here to this moment in time. We thank you for Peter and his letter, and we pray, Father, through your Holy Spirit, you would open this letter to our hearts and lives as we commit that our coming and ourselves into your hands in the name of Yeshua, our Lord and Savior, our coming King, in whose name we do pray. Amen. So we're in Second Peter, and it's a little different than what we've had in the past. This was written shortly after his first letter, just as Paul did to Corinth, as you recall, and Thessalonica and Timothy. Paul wrote his in pairs to some extent. This was probably written after Paul's death, somewhere between A.D. 64 and 68, by the reckoning of many of the scholars. Uh, Peter mentions Paul's epistles, all his epistles, as being in circulation already, as you may recall. In fact, uh, many people who are uncomfortable with Paul need to realize that Peter endorses Paul. We covered that last time, but let's keep that in mind. Now, this epistle has had a pretty rough time through the hands of the critics, through the centuries, it was considered second-class scripture by Luther, and it was rejected by Erasmus, and it was regarded with hesitancy by Calvin. But that having been said, there are a lot of controversies about. We're not going to even bother with those. Uh, by the fourth century, it was well accepted throughout most of the Christian world. So I'm not going to waste our time haggling about that. Uh, the, the style of the Greek's is a little different, but that's because he didn't have the amanuensis that he had in the first letter, apparently. Incidentally, in cave 7 at Qumran, you know, the Dead Sea Scroll area, a papyrus fragment, 7Q5, appears to be part of Mark's Gospel, comprising Mark chapter 6, verse 52 and 53. A tiny fragment, only two centimeters, 7Q10, was found in the same cave, and it has six letters in two lines which could only come from 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 15, if it is from the New Testament at all. Just a little fragment, not a, not a provable thing, but apparently may be, very well be a part of 2 Peter chapter 1, just as an incidental uh, chat as we go here. And, uh, and that's, that has its documentation. Um, it's been conjectured that this letter might have been the covering document to Mark's gospel Uh, to the Qumran community, shortly before the Jewish war in AD 68, when the cave was closed. That's a conjecture, but there's some suggestive evidence to support that. Like most of the second epistles, where we have a first and a second, second epistles are very often, very usually, corrective. The prophet or exhorter uh, who speaks is is correcting some behavior. In his final message, just prior to his martyrdom, Peter gives us some specific warnings concerning the coming apostasy. 2 Peter chapter 2 is a major, one of the major passages about the final apostasy of the church, what we often call, because of Revelation's revelation, we call it the Laodicean period. And we're clearly being plunged into that. So this letter is going to be very, very relevant to all of us for a number of reasons. And uh, so... uh, but there is an apostasy prophesied to come over Christendom and we're certainly seeing that as we try to assess the spiritual condition of the church around the world, not just here in America. The two epistles of Peter are linked by the two primary experiences in Peter's life. The first experience was the declaration of the building of the church in Caesarea Philippi in Matthew 16. We talked a lot about that going through his first epistle. This epistle has the glow, if you will, of the transfiguration, very specifically alluded to in it. And that glow pervades the, the epistle. So those are two required readings here. So as you get, you do preparation for Second Peter and its subsequent uh, times, I encourage you to refresh your memory of Matthew 17, the experience that Peter participated in on what we call the Mount Transfiguration. So let's jump in. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. A servant. Key word here that you want to be sensitive to. The Greek is doulos. It actually means a bond slave. Someone has voluntarily committed his life to the service of the house. And it's interesting to us here in Coeur d'Alene because Coeur d'Alene is a French term meaning the heart of the awl or piercing tool and that's exactly that to a biblical reader appears twice in the Old Testament and that was the occasion when a servant having completed his indebted servitude chooses when he chose to stay with the house for the rest of his life. He became a doulos, and they ceremonialized that by piercing his ear to the doorpost of the house. And he would wear a ring in that ear as a a, uh, uh, a badge of honor, because he was there voluntarily for the rest of his life. A doulos. And that's a term that Peter uses of himself here, John uses that same expression of himself in Revelation, and so on. Clearly this letter is written to the same audience as the first letter, which are believing Jews. It's a Jewish letter. And, uh, but uh, to them who have obtained like precious, the word precious we'll discover is one of Peter's favorite words. It uh, shows up all through here. Precious faith through, uh, uh, with us through the righteousness of God. Let's not lose sight of what that is. That's the righteousness which Im- is imputed to us by God. That's not our righteousness. It's his righteousness uh, imputed to us. And we need to understand that. That That's an imputed righteousness it would be unrighteous of God to refuse to save anyone who desired to avail himself to the result of the to the you know of the work of the cross. God desires that all men should be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Let's understand that the faith given to them by God, his listeners was equal to the honor or privilege of that of the apostles' faith. You know, we often expect that the apostles, boy, they're up here. Same faith is available to us. The faith of the apostles was no different from the faith of any believer. That's an astonishing truth, by the way. This This is specifically in contrast to the view of the Gnostics. The Gnostic doctrines focused on by false teachers... That they had an inner circle of special knowledge that's attainable by and available only to a privileged few. No, that's not biblical. Indeed, you need to grow in knowledge, grow in grace, and so forth. Indeed, but it's all available to the, it's all available to the diligent. Okay, let's continue. Verse two: Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. That's a knowledge that only the Holy Spirit can give. It's a supernatural experience. It's not an intellectual experience. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you. It's interesting to notice as we go how often Peter uses mathematical terms. Be multiplied. So the same thing occurred in First Peter chapter 1. Verse 3, according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue. Now, the glory and virtue in this text happens to be in the plural. It really is glories and virtues as a small point, but worth uh, understanding. According to as his divine power. Now, you know, we use the term power in so many ways. The word here is dunamis. That's the word that became a patented word for an explosive called dynamite. But that's a misleading term. It's more a term that means like dynamo. It's a source of power. It's not explosive. It's a source of power. And uh, it's one of Peter's favorite words. We'll see it all through his writings. But i like to talk a little bit about power because it has different terms. There's four different terms you'll encounter in the New Testament. Dunamis, Think of it as a source of power. Dunamis is controlled or switched on by kratos. That's another term you'll see. And kratos ends up with is, uh, iscus, which is the empowerment. If you look at dunamis as the source, like, the, like say a battery, kratos is the control, or reins or the switch, or the volume control, so to speak. And iscus is then the empowerment. If you visualize a light being turned on by a switch, dunamis is like correlative, in a sense, to the battery. Kratos is what empow- turns it on, and iscus is that the result of that, the empowerment of that, okay? All of this is embraced by the term authority, or exousia. So those are three Greek words that uh, are worth getting a sense of their discrimination. Why do I say that? Well, exousia is how to overcome. Your power comes from dunamis, but kratos, the turning on, is different depending on what you're fighting. We know we're fighting the world, the flesh, and the devil right so the, so the Word of God is our primary uh, uh, resource uh in 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 dealing with the world, and we do that through faith through faith that comes from the Word of God. the flesh we go to the cross and we flee the lust of the flesh and the the devil is the blood of Christ shed on the cross and As uh, Donald Grey Barnhouse likes, as he summarizes our strategies in all three, the world is through faith. Our our, our, uh, uh, dealing with the flesh is to flee it, and the and the devil we fight. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And all of these three things then can be considered the iscus, if you will, the empowerment that comes from the the Kratos, which is applying the the right flavor on the right place. so this is a little background It's a diagram that comes out of our book called "The Kingdom, the Power and the Glory," that my wife and I uh, have uh, uh, put together as a hand, as a handbook for the overcomer, and we get into some of these deals there so okay let's move on back to second Peter verse four, second Peter one, verse four whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious, there's that word again, precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature. Wow. Having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Precious promises. Indeed, some people make a good practice of making a collection of the promises of God. Every time you find one, write it down on a little card and put it in your collection. And collect the promises of God. There's nothing more encouraging than just to to go through those from time to time. Many people make that sort of a hobby. Collecting the precious promises that are all through the Word of God. Why? That ye might be partakers of the divine nature. Those are glib words, but very penetrating. What it really says, by the way, is become partners. The word partakers there is koinonos. That's one of the reasons we call our publishing activity Koinonia House. This is why we, our think tank is called Koinonia Institute. Koinonia, a word that means participant, uh, a partner. It means communication and fellowship. When you take communion, you take koinonos. So, sharing assets and liabilities. And because they are partakers of God's nature, Christians can share in His moral victory over sin in this life. Yes, you can have victory over sin in this life, and share in His glorious victory over death in eternal life. That's incredible. Uh, His nature is available to us. We may not do it faithfully or thoroughly enough, but it's available to us. That separates us from an unbeliever. An unbeliever is in bondage to sin. If you're a believer, you're no longer in bondage. You can call upon the Holy Spirit to have victory. So, because of the promise of the new birth in 1 Peter 1.3, and the promise of God's protecting power in 1 Peter 1.5 that we went through before, and the promise of God's enabling power that we've just talked about, believers can participate in the divine nature that is be- to become more like Christ. And there's obviously a lot of passages in Romans and Galatians and Paul's letters, of course, really dwell on all that. Having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And the word lust there includes covetousness and every sort of forbidden yearning. It's not limited just to sexual, as most of us tend to assume. It's any forbidden yearning is lust. And uh, we we can escape that through the Holy Spirit. Now we have a cluster of verses, 5, 6, and 7, that Peter says, besides this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to your virtue, knowledge, and to knowledge, temperance, and to temperance, patience, and to patience, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, charity. Wow. That's quite an inventory that we need to aspire to. Add the word there, it's in the imperative, that means it's a command. It translates epikorego, which, is, which comes from the English word chorus, or choreograph, or choreography. Now, let's go into this a little bit. In ancient Greece, the state established a chorus, but the director of the chorus, the was he paid the expenses for the training of the chorus, and from that, the word came to mean uh, anyone who provides for our support uh, or supports others and uh, supplies something for them in abundance. In, in, in Hollywood terms, he's the producer. He provides the, the the means, if you will. A believer is to furnish, supply, or support his life with these virtues is the idea. okay? In a sense, you're going to spiritually choreograph your virtues is the, is the flavor of this term. So, It says, besides uh, giving, uh, add to your faith, virtue. And that's more than just uh, chastity. It's really a warrior's term, like valor, like a soldier. It's virtue in 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 the warrior sense. And add to your virtue, knowledge. There can be no growth in any of us without a deepened understanding of the spiritual realities. And you only get that, of course, through the Word of God and the Holy Spirit. And so, add to knowledge, temperance. Add to knowledge, temperance. That's a word for self-control, okay? And faith, goodness, spiritual knowledge are not enough for the Christian's walk. He must also make every effort to practice self-control. And the word is ekratia, and you notice right in the middle there is kratos. That same root is in there. The switch, the control, the the reins, okay? The steering mechanism is another way to think of it. It's used only two other times in the New Testament, Acts 24 and Galatians 5. It means for for one's passions to be under control. Think of it as the steering wheel or the accelerator and brakes, whatever. It contrasts with the terms of anarchy or lack of control as will be explained emphasized on the part of the false teachers that are going to come up in the next chapter. In the next session, we'll be getting into that. The absence of temperance. And add to temperance, patience. Patience, that's to endure without complaining. Did you realize that murmuring is a sin? From here, we could go into my whole diatribe on the most painful sin, gossip. I don't have to do that here. I think you've heard me enough on that. Patience. I don't know how many times you've prayed for that. Father, I want patience, and I need it right now. (laughs) Being impatient. And to patience, godliness, and that's God-likeness, true piety. Not piety in the external sense, true piety. And uh, to uh, uh, to uh, uh, godliness and brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, charity. Charity, love. And obviously, 1 Corinthians 13 is a well-known passage on that. So let's continue, verse 8. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. The idea is for you not to be barren or unfruitful. And the word barren can also mean idle or inactive. In other words, not uh, 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 fruitful. Peter's concluding benediction in this epistle, his last words to us in, the, in this epistle will be that we are to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior. But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. The word blind, a and also myopezon, which means myopic, that's the word from where myopic comes from. Unable to discern spiritual things, blind on the one hand, or cannot see afar off. In other words, he's nearsighted. Wherefore, the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. The word diligence here, di- there's an expression in law or among investors. It's called due, the diligence that's due or the due diligence. Before you, uh, you buy a piece of property or enter into a transaction, if you're a, a steward for a, a you're a professional steward, one of your obligations is to exercise the diligence that's due. To dig into it, get the background, check the facts. So the word diligence is a heavy word in the courts and in the law. Due diligence, a stewardship, an investor term and so forth. And manifestation is a confirmation. Make your calling an election sure. That's a strange word. Babylon, which is used in classical Greek to refer to a warranty deed. Somewhat like people use today for houses or other pieces of property. One's godly behavior is a warranty deed for himself that Jesus Christ has cleansed him from his past sins and therefore that he was in fact called and elected by God. Your justification before the throne of God is 100% paid for by Jesus Christ. When you accept Christ, you are declared not guilty. You haven't changed yet. But one of the ways you know something's happened is you begin to see that confirmed or evidenced by changes that begin. And that's your warranty deed. That's your proof that it happened, if you will. And uh, Babylonian mean, is also rendered secure in Hebrews, the word guaranteed in Romans 4, firm in 2 Corinthians 1, courage, confidence, in force. It's a confirming kind of term. Make your, elect, your calling an election sure. Now, calling and election is here, and it's the backward, it's actually your election occurs before your calling, but the point is, calling refers to God's efficacious work in salvation. Once you're saved, he's going to, there'll be a calling evident, because you have been elected. That's God's work of choosing some sinners by his grace, not because of their merit, uh, to be saved. God's election and calling. And, uh, Theologically would be sounder if it was in the right order there. Election, of course, precedes calling. A believer shows by his godly life and his growth in the virtues mentioned before that he is one of God's chosen. That's the way you can demonstrate, you can confirm, you can evidence your calling and your election and your calling. And there, if, if you do that, these things, you shall never fall. Don't misunderstand this. This doesn't mean you can lose your salvation. Many people don't understand that. The word fall here actually is the word stumble. Uh, And uh, this does not suggest that a believer loses salvation, for salvation does not depend on your spiritual growth. It's it's 100% dependent on what Christ completed on the cross in Judea 2,000 years ago. The Greek word for stumble means to trip up or to experience a reversal. Yes, we'll stumble. And... uh, Shake the dust off and keep going. And uh, certainly one who is maturing in Christ will not trip up in a spiritual life as readily as one who is immature or nearsighted. That's really the flavor of these, the passages we just read. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. See, constant victory is the goal. And this is probably in memory of what the Lord had told him when he was publicly reinstated in the place of apostleship, at the seaside. Remember, he denied Jesus Christ three times, but in John 21, by the seaside, in his resurrection resurrected body, Jesus is there and asks, gives it three three opportunities to to reconfirm himself, and that's his reinstatement. He never lost his salvation, but he lost his posture as a disciple. The angel says, "Go tell the disciples and Peter." When he talks about the empty tomb. Because Peter had lost his, his, his uh, position, in a sense, by his uh, uh, e- experience that or earlier that evening. And, or, or a couple days, that, uh, anyway, earlier that week. Wherefore, I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, Peter's saying. I'm not going to be negligent to put you always in remembrance of things, though ye know them, and be established in the present truth. In other words, even though you've heard these things before, I'm going to keep reminding you. So when you hear one of my tapes for the 110th time, understand, I'm just being scriptural. (laughs) I'm not going to be negligent uh, uh, to put you always in remembrance. See, Peter understood our need for repeated remindings, if you will. Yea, I think it meet as long as I am in this tabernacle to stir you up by putting you in remembrance, knowing that shortly... I must put off this tabernacle, even as our Lord Jesus Christ has showed me. And that, of course, is an allusion to John 21, where Jesus indicated that he, there was a destiny for him. He knew it was coming. And he probably, like Paul, said words to the effect, to be with Christ, which is far better. Paul said, I'm a twixt between two, having a desire to depart and to be with him. When a, when a, when a, a minister or a preacher dies... Understand he's getting a reward. He's anxious to be with his Lord. We just had a funeral here last week of a dear, dear brother who's one of our earliest directors when we first on our, on our ministry when we first came up here, Eric Schubert. and he passed away. But he's with the Lord, you see, and he's, he is to be with Christ, which is far better. When a Christian passes away, there should be a party, a celebration. Not a moribund funeral or something. You know, it should be upbeat. Peter said, the image of the earthly body being like a tent. See, he's using the term tabernacle. It really means like tent. When I put off this tent. It's a very temporary covering, so to speak. The image of an earthly body being like a tent. That fits well with Peter's whole theme that he's just a pilgrim. I'm just passing through.
1: You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of 2 Peter. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device.